um, the other day, and I came across a whole uh, stack of titles of books with names like these. And I want you to think about the names of these books. Uh, there was a book called Win in Business. Another one called Attitudes That Attract Success. Uh, there was a book called The Pillars of Business Success. Uh, one called Your Roadmap for Success. A book called Win in Business. And one called From Success to Significance. Now, the descriptions of the books uh, read uh, like these. Uh, and I quote, one description said, this book highlights ways to improve cash flow and to massively improve profits. Now, I'm noticing people are waving bulletins around as fans. Is that right? Are people a bit hot? Does some, would someone who knows about air conditioning switch the air conditioning on for us? Um, that would be a really helpful thing to do. Thank you, Ben. Great. Okay. That should settle that. Um, listen to the descriptions of these books. Um, I've read one description that it would uh, highlight ways that you could improve cash flow and massively improve profits. There was another book that said, and I quote, if you would like to create a remarkable standout business, then this prov book provides you with the essential framework to thrust you into the front line of the queue. Now, what bookshop was I looking at? I'm not asking you to name, I'll name some names, I'll name, tell you what I wasn't looking at. You would expect to find books like that in the business section at uh, Dimmock's or of uh, Angus and Robertson. I used to work in the library for the Australian Graduate School of Management and uh, uh, they would be titles that I would have been packing onto shelves uh, when I was working at that library. But uh, no, I didn't find those titles at any of those bookshops. Uh, I found these titles on an, a Christian online bookshop. Uh, it's a bookshop which is dedicated to providing books to help you uh, to get to know God better, uh, to help you in your Christian life and in your ministry. Right? Did, did you get that? These were books on a Christian online bookshop. Now, it's very helpful uh, to have Christians who are, uh, have got gifts of administration. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 says that uh, it is actually a spiritual gift from God. But in uh, contemporary Christianity, there's been what I think is an unhelpful tendency to, to merge um, the, the world of business and success uh, with the spiritual life and with Christian ministry. And to merge them in, in such a way that the two are, are often seen as almost uh, indistinguishable from one another. They become the same thing. Uh, there are, if you've read the current edition of the Australian Presbyterian magazine, there's an interesting article by Bruce Winter. And in that article, which is on leadership, Bruce Winter uh, says that there are theological colleges or colleges in the United States which are, uh, have been set up to train people for full-time ministry, to, to train ministers like myself and other full-time Christian workers. And those colleges are now offering MBA programs, Master of Business Administration, management degrees at theological colleges. 
And we now have Christian bookshops where whole sections are devoted to success in business and making money. It's also uh, infected evangelism. Uh, The gospel has become a message about how to live successfully, how to live a successful life with God. Uh, That's the message in a lot of churches. Rather than a message of repentance, forgiveness and self-sacrifice. Now that is an attractive message to people because what it means is that you can, you can have God but you can also have all of your worldly desires and you'll never be challenged. In fact, you'll be encouraged, you'll be egged on to be pursuing, to be loving both God and money at the same time. Um, we see that uh, in some circles now that a person's spiritual uh, life is, measure, is measured by their success and by their prosperity. If you're doing well in business, that's because you're pretty much in tune with God. Uh, the, the value of a church is measured in numbers, by how many people come along, what the offertory is, and so on. And uh, the worthiness of a Christian leader uh, is determined by how charismatic, uh, how much charisma that person has. But I think it's a different story when we look at the ministry of Jesus and the disciples, particularly in respect to these issues of of success and popularity. Um, As I mentioned earlier, we're going to look at the last few verses of Matthew 9. We're going to look at the whole of chapter 10 today, if you'd like to open that up on page 687. That That is a big slab of scripture. And to be honest, in the 20 minutes I've got remaining, uh, we're going to just kind of skim the surface. You could actually do a whole series of sermons on this passage of Scripture, but I want us to get the, the big picture. I want us to get the overview of uh, what Jesus is saying here. So I'm going to focus on just a few key issues. Now, just to set the context, up until this point, Jesus has been travelling around and he's been teaching and he's been healing people. Uh, And he's been gathering followers around himself, but he's been doing the work uh, on his own. But now it's time for Jesus to draw some of his followers into the work. Now I want to ask the question, what motivated Jesus? Because motivation is, uh, is foundational for Christian ministry. And we see Jesus' motivation in verse 36. Let me read that for you. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Why were they without a shepherd? Well, the shepherds of Israel were the religious leaders, uh, the prophets, the priests, the, uh, uh, the, the people who, the, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and so on. These were, the, these were the shepherds of Israel. But these shepherds were not feeding the sheep. Uh, they were caught up in their prestige. Uh, for some of them, they were caught up in their comfortable relationship with the Roman overlords. These were like the hired hands, not the, not the true shepherds. And so Jesus had compassion on the people. Now, in the, in the original Greek... Uh, where it says compassion there, it literally means 
that he was moved in his guts. It's a bit more earthy than the English translation, isn't it? You see, the uh, uh, ancient people, when they thought about emotions, you know, you know, we talk about emotions coming from the heart. We know that emotions don't come from the heart. You know, the heart's just a pump that pumps blood. Well, they thought of the emotions as coming from the intestines. Uh, but I like the, I, I like the, uh, uh, the, the imagery here, that Jesus was moved in his guts for these people. Uh, what it tells us is that he's not clinical. Jesus is not just doing a job for the sake of doing a job. It is packed with emotion. As he looks at the crowds, he sees people who are not being cared for. He sees people who are not being taught the word of God by those who should have been teaching them. And so in verse 1 of chapter 10, he gathers together 12 of his uh, disciples and we're told that he gave these 12 the authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal people. But notice in verse 2, those 12 are not referred to as disciples in verse 2, are they? They're referred to as, what does it say? Apostles. Now, this is the first time in the gospel that 12 men are specifically referred to as apostles. In verse 1, they're referred to as disciples, which means followers. But here they're referred to as apostles. Now, when we think of apostles, we think of a title, but the word apostle simply means someone who has been sent, someone who has been sent out uh, by, their, by their master. And so now these 12 are not simply disciples. Now they're not simply followers. Now they are being sent out by Jesus to, to engage in the ministry of the kingdom of God. They are apostles. In verse 5, they are to go into the towns and villages of the Jews. They're not to go to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans as yet. That will come later. But it is specifically to the lost sheep of Israel whom they are to go to. And when they go, what are they to do? In verses 7 to 8, they are to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers and drive out demons. That is, in verse 1, Jesus has given them special authority to do these things. Now, think about the miracles of Jesus so far as we've been working through Matthew's Gospel. We've seen a lot of miracles, haven't we? It's been quite... Ex Jesus made an enormous impact uh, because he healed sick people. And when he healed sick people, how did he do it? Well, he very often, he touched the person. Last week you would have learnt about the, the, the woman who touched Jesus. And we saw in that that when Jesus touched sick people, that ceremonially he became unclean, but they became clean. He even touched the lepers. And we saw in that that it was a, like a prefiguring of the gospel, of what Jesus would do on the cross, when he who had no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, he also uh, raised people from the dead. Again, we saw that last week, didn't we? When Peter preached on, uh, on Matthew 9 with the, uh, uh, the ruler whose daughter uh, who had died and was 
uh, Jesus raised her from the dead. And we see in that, again, a prefiguring of the gospel because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the one in whom we can have eternal life. We've seen how Jesus drived out demons. Again, we saw that last week. And what that shows is that Jesus has authority over Satan, that Jesus actually is victorious over Satan. So all of these things, all of these miracles, um, they're not simply tricks that Jesus was performing. Uh, They're not even simply uh, just healing people who were in a bad situation. That certainly they were. But more than that, it points us to who Jesus is, that he is Messiah, and it points us to the gospel itself. Now, in verses nine, in verse seven, the apostles now are given the authority and the power to do these things. But as they do so, they are to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is near, because the Old Testament always said that when you see the, you know, the blind seeing, the the, the deaf hearing, the the lame walking, then you will know that the time has come, that Messiah has arrived. And this is the message. In verses 9 to 10, they were to go out loaded with possessions, no gold, no silver, no copper. Uh, Those were the three types of metals that were used in coins in those days. So they weren't to go out loaded with cash, uh, nor were they they to go out loaded with extra clothes. Uh, It's not actually about comfort. It's not about money and material possessions. It's about having compassion for the lost sheep of Israel. But what were they getting themselves into? And how would people respond to them? Take a look at verses 11 to 13 of chapter 10. In verse 11, uh, Jesus says, Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. That's saying something, isn't it? I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. So there's two different kinds of reactions that they'll receive from people. Firstly, there will be some people who will be very appreciative of their ministry. Um, These are people who love God. These are people who want the kingdom of God to spread and they can see that these guys are doing that work and so they want to encourage them and so they invite them into their homes. They feed them. They are hospitable towards them because they're doing the work of mission. They engage with them and ultimately, as we can see, they are actually blessed by them. So that's the first response. But not all people respond like that because he talks about wolves there, doesn't he? Now, I don't think we have wolves in Australia. The closest we've got is the dingo. Uh, And dingoes, as far as I understand it, are quite different from wolves. So they're kind of shy creatures. Uh, Wolves are ferocious, predatorial meat eaters. 
Now, imagine if a sheep found him or herself surrounded by a pack of wolves. Uh, what do you think would happen? I'd give the sheep about five seconds. Uh, wolves are amazing. Go and get onto YouTube and watch a video of, of wolves attacking something when you get home today. And it gives, you really give you a good idea. Ian can't because he doesn't have broadband out, out the outback. <laughs> it is, it is for, they are ferocious. I mean, a, a sheep would not last more than a few seconds. A sheep would be ripped to shreds by a pack of wolves. In verse 16, Jesus says to them, I'm sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. That is, the news about Jesus is the fragrance of life to some, but to others it is the stench of death. There are people who cannot stand hearing about Jesus. They don't like to hear the things which Jesus preached about sin and repentance, about Jesus being God. They don't like that. It makes them angry. And so Jesus warns his apostles in verse 14, there's going to be people who won't listen to what they say. In verses 17 to 18, that they would be arrested and handed over to the authorities, that they would be scourged, that they would be whipped. Uh, in verse 21, the gospel of Jesus would cause great division and hostility within families, even to the point of death. Now, in some parts of the world today, when a young person becomes a Christian, uh, that is soon followed by a funeral. Uh, sometimes because a literal death has occurred, uh, because the person has named Jesus as Lord and Saviour. They lose their life. Sometimes it's a figurative, uh, a symbolic funeral as well. I've no, no situations where, where a person, a son or daughter becomes a Christian, that the parents then go and conduct a funeral service, without a body, uh, because they're saying, my son or my daughter is now dead to me, no longer my child. That's serious stuff. Um, but for people like us. Uh, be, being a Christian may mean that we sometimes lose our friends because they don't like what we stand for. Have a look at verses 24 and 25. Verse 24, a student is not above his teacher nor a servant about his, above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household... Now, when was the head of the house called Beelzebub? Last week's passage. When Jesus healed, the religious leaders said that it, was, it is by, the, by the, uh, the, the, the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Um, what it's saying here is that if Jesus was rejected, then, and you're a servant of Jesus, then you ought to be expected to be rejected as well and I'm glad that Jesus it's merciful and kind for Jesus to warn his apostles of this and his disciples because in doing that he's actually preparing them for, to understand what's happening to them when they end up being 
reject it and people get angry with them, that they'll know that they shouldn't take it personally because the person's quarrel is not with them, the person's quarrel is with God. And I think that that actually, knowing that actually strengthens uh, us as Christians to keep on putting the truths of, of the, about Jesus out there before people. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been engaging in a conversation with a non-Christian uh, friend of mine. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I put some truths out there for him to consider about Jesus. Uh, and his reaction to me was a, a little bit aggressive, a bit kind of dismissive and angry towards me and dismissing what I was saying. And I thought, okay, that's, that's interesting. I'm not going to take that personally. That's a quarrel he's got with God, not with me. So I then went and confronted him with a few more issues about God. And then he came back to me with some refutation of that. And uh, I went back to him. <laughs> and each time I was trying to draw him more and more into considering uh, the truths about Jesus in a more rational and less emotional way. Uh, but I think that knowing that his quarrel is not with me but with God is actually quite a strengthening thing uh, when that sort of rejection and opposition occurs. You see, the truth of the gospel divides people. Um, it even divided the apostles, didn't it? Go back to chapter 10, verses 2 to 4. Let me read these verses for you again. Here he names the 12 apostles. And he says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. Everything's fine so far. And Judas Iscariot, who? Who what? Who betrayed him. Who betrayed him. You see... Jesus, the truth of the gospel divided even the apostles. Jesus suffered even at the hands of one of these 12. Indeed, most of these men, um, probably 10 of the 12, uh, within uh, various time frames, did lose their lives brutally because they preached the gospel. Um, the apostles were, some of them were crucified, um, beheaded, uh, stoned, uh, whipped, scourged, uh, because they taught that Jesus died and rose again. So what, what Jesus is saying here was to become a real reality to these apostles. You see... This is quite different to the message which says that God wants all Christians to be successful and rich, doesn't it? It's a very different message. It's a different message that says that if you become a Christian, then all of your problems are going to be over. Now, I want to say this, that uh, when you become a Christian, the biggest of your problems is over, and that is that you actually will no longer be going to hell. You will then spend the rest of eternity in heaven. I want to say also that becoming Christian means that a lot of our old sinful habits um, ought to change and that's good for us. That is the best life. That is a far more better situation to be in. But that is because of repentance. 
It's because of repentance, including repentance from greed and materialism. It means that, uh, that we no longer live for ourselves and for what we can acquire. Uh, it means that we live for God and for others. Now, notice also that in what Jesus says, there is no spin doctoring going on. You understand what I mean by spin doctoring? Where you so kind of massage the truth that the real hidden cost of the real cost of something ends up being hidden. Um, I find the recruitment ads on TV for the military to be interesting in this regard. Now, some of you probably got family members in serving in the military, and I'm very glad we've got a military. Okay, uh, I'm not knocking that, but I'm, I'm not. I'm interested in the ads. If you watch, if you watch the ads for joining the army or the air force or the navy, what kind of thing does it portray? What kind of lifestyle does it portray? It's a, it's a lifestyle of adventure, isn't it? It's, uh, it's all about excitement and adventure and a great way to develop your skills and a great way to develop as a, as a person. It's about travel. It's about being educated at the expense of the government and, and so on. Um, I was t- talking to a young guy who was finishing up school and he told me he wanted to join the army. I said, "Okay, that's um, that's interesting." And he told me a bit of, about you know the army and uh, and so on, and why he was joining the army. And so I said to him, "Well, h- how do you feel about going and fighting in a war?" He said, "A what?" I said, "A war." <laughs> he said, "A war?" I said, "Yeah, a war." So well, I haven't thought about that. <laughs> uh, he said, "I said, well, that's." That's what it's all about. The reason we have an army is so that we can fight wars. How do you feel about fighting in a war? He said, well, they didn't even mention that to me. I went and saw the recruitment officer. They told me how I could get my engineering degree free at, uh, if I went down to Adfer in Canberra. But no, there was no discussion about, about war. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? I imagine if there was, they probably wouldn't be able to recruit too many people. Um, and as I say... You know, I'm glad people serve in the military. The point here is that with Jesus, there's no spin doctrine going on. He wants us to follow him. He wants us to be engaged with him in his mission, but he's upfront about what that's going to involve. There's no hidden cost. I was watching television a few nights ago, late at night, and a thing came up on the TV during the ad break, uh, which was bizarre there was a whole lot of products and services that were flashed um, on the screen, uh, or rather rolled up the screen, and the voice said something to the effect that uh, the ACCC had found that the company had not divulged the actual cost of their services. They hadn't communicated that adequately And the company was sorry about that and promised never to do it again. Now, the whole thing flashed so quickly that I didn't even catch what the name of the company was. Uh, But as I thought about it later, I realised what's going on here is that this is a company that's obviously offered products to people on television, like those, you know, SMS to get a ringtone or whatever. And you know that 
you know, at the bottom of the screen, there's all this tiny print that you can't even read, even if you do have full digital uh, television. And the actual cost was in the fine print, you know, like uh, it's going to cost you $5 to send this SMS and uh, then you're actually going to be registered to send a $5 SMS every week uh, until such time as you phone us up and cancel, that, that sort of thing. The actual cost was hidden in the fine print so that you couldn't see it and someone had reported them to the ACCC and now they had been required to offer this apology. Well, with Jesus, there's no fine print. It's not there. Jesus tells it straight. Following Jesus is costly. In verse 37, we are to live for him even above our own families. Now, it is a noble thing to put your family first, but Jesus says our love for him must be even greater. And by the way, when you put Jesus above your family, you end up serving your family better as well. In verse 38, we must be prepared to take up our cross and follow him which involves putting to death our sinful nature, which involves living for what God says is important, which involves telling people about Jesus. Some people will love you for it. Others will hate you. But popularity is not the issue. Neither is lifestyle. The issue is compassion for the lost. Um, a, a few man months back, I can't remember if I told you this or not. Forgive me if I did, but a few months back, I was having a conversation with a man from South Korea and he told me about how dreadful life is for people uh, north of the, what is it, the 38th parallel in North Korea. He told me of, of what a, an appalling lifestyle people live, the poverty, the hunger, uh, the sickness and so on in communist North Korea. And he told me about how many, many people literally risk their lives to escape, to get out of that country. And uh, they swim over some treacherous river into China or they somehow head down into S South Korea. I don't know how they do that. Uh, they put their lives on the line. And some of these refugees, having finally arrived at a place outside of North Korea have come into contact with Christians and have started reading the Bible and have come to, to know about God. And they've been deprived of a knowledge of God in atheistic North Korea. And they've come to understand who Jesus is, what he's done for them on the cross. And they've, they've been grouped with gratitude for forgiveness and eternal life. And they have been so, they have developed such a compassion for the lost in their own country that they've made the decision, having escaped North Korea, to go back. To go back uh, into that country, to tell others about Jesus. Now, quite frankly, I can understand if they made a decision not to do that. I would not begrudge them if they made the decision that they would go on and live the Christian life in South Korea, 
or in Australia or New Zealand or Canada or whatever country can take refugees. But how else would people living in North Korea hear the gospel, hear about Jesus? It's a communist country. You and I wouldn't even be allowed to live there, let alone understand the language. But these refugees can speak the language and they can live in the country. So having paid a great cost to get out, they've now gone back. For them, following Jesus may, meant uh, making a deliberate choice, a deliberate choice to live in poverty, uh, a deliberate choice to live in a totalitarian communist country. For them, following Jesus meant making a deliberate choice to live in a country where they could potentially be imprisoned and killed for preaching Christ, and yet preaching Christ was the very reason that they wanted to go there. Extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, to, to some extent, it's, to me, it's reminiscent of the Moravian missionaries in the 18th century who wanted to reach slaves for the sake of the gospel. And to do that, they were prepared to sell themselves into slavery so that they could reach slaves. This is costly. Now, I rather doubt that uh, you're going to read anything about this uh, as a strategy for living the successful Christian life in one of those Christian business books. You won't see it there. It's not part of the thinking at all. But for you and I, putting Christ first and engaging in mission is probably not going to be as dramatic as any of those scenarios. It's going to be much simpler. It's going to involve simpler things. I want to say that if we cannot do the simple things then we certainly wouldn't do the dramatic things. But see, there are simple things that you and I can be doing to be engaging in mission. Let me throw one or two of them out to you. And this is one I talked about earlier on in the service. How about offering hospitality to a young person coming on the mission team in a couple of months from now? It's not a terribly hard thing to do, is it? It might be a little bit inconvenient. But how about making the choice to be involved. How about making the choice to go out to a couple of the schools or to go out to the retirement villages with the mission team, to sit with them, to get to know some of the people there, to interact with people and to be involved in that work. Um, we're going to be having carols by candlelight. Not too hard to invite a friend to come to carols by candlelight. These are simple things. These are easy things for us to do. Uh, for us, uh, it, it may simply mean opening our mouths and talking to someone about our wonderful Saviour, Jesus Christ, uh, instead of keeping our, 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 our mouths shut because we fear that we might offend them, that they might reject us. I've got news for you. They might be offended. They might reject you but they might also come to hear and understand the words of eternal life. You might be involved in their salvation. You'll never be involved in people's salvation unless you're prepared to be available to God and open your mouth uh, and get involved and engaged. You see, 
the real issue is this. Do we, like Jesus, have compassion for the lost? Do we feel it in our guts when we think about the many, many people uh, who are our friends, our family members, our neighbours, people who live in this town, who are living their lives without a knowledge of the Creator? Uh, They might enjoy the creation, but do they know the Creator? And they're not only living without God in this life, but they'll be living with God without God in the next life unless they hear the gospel and turn to Christ. When we think about people who are heading to a Christless eternity, uh, does it grieve us? Uh, are we sad about that? Uh, do we feel it in our guts? Do we want to be involved with God, with God in helping them uh, to know the wonderful joy of salvation that we know? It's not all that hard. You won't read it in business books. It's about being available to God and having compassion for the lost and being prepared to take up our cross daily. And follow Jesus, no matter where that might lead us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great compassion for this world that uh, meant that you sent your son to die for us. We thank you that as Jesus looked out upon the crowds, that, uh, that he felt it in his guts, that he was sad and sorrowful, and uh, that he just wanted to reach reach out and to, uh, uh, to help people to come to know how they could be saved. Father, we pray for ourselves. We thank you that you have been so merciful to us. And uh, just as we have freely been given, may we also freely give. That uh, through us, that you would be pleased to be calling more people to yourself. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.